And so the United States has accepted that even though the U.S. is not part of this treaty, that, that rule is binding on it and it's binding on, on other states as custom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Security Dilemma, a podcast for the John Quincy Adams Society. I'm Patrick C. Fox, joined this week by another member of the JQAS team, Scott McCann. Today, we are exploring the legal side of national security with Dr. Brian Finucan. Dr. Finucan spent a decade working in the U.S. State Department's Office of the Legal Advisor, where he advised on legal and policy issues covering counterterrorism, the use of military force, and military partnerships. Today, he's a senior advisor for the U.S. program at International Crisis Group, developing legislative reforms for war powers and counterterrorism authorities. Our conversation today will cover the legality of the use of force against Hamas and Hezbollah, the rules of war in Gaza, the Geneva Convention's additional protocols, the 127 ECHO program, intervention in Mexico, the legal basis of strategic ambiguity, and the future of war power reform. Here is our conversation with Dr. Brian Finucan. Dr. Brian Finucan, thank you for being here with us on Security Dilemma. Thanks for having me. So we'll just jump right in here. Um, you have written quite a, a bit about, um, you know, repealing old AUMFs uh, and war powers. How do you see the the recent violence in Israel and Hamas um, impacting those efforts to repeal AUMF, old AUMFs, uh, in particular since... Uh, some members of Congress have actually suggested that a new AUMF might be needed to address the the threat of Hamas and Hezbollah. Right. Just uh, some background for listeners. There are several outdated war authorizations that remain on the books. Um, there is a, a 1957 resolution relating to international communism in the Middle East, for example. Um, there's the authorization for the 1991 Gulf War. Um, there's the 2002 authorization for the Iraq War, and most significantly, there's the 2001 authorization uh, for use of military force, which is a principal statutory authority for the U.S. war on terror. And um, the Senate has already voted to repeal the two Iraq AOMFs, the 1991 and 2002 AOMFs, um, and now the actions in the House of Representatives about what to do with these four outdated resolutions. Um, there was a hearing at the end of September in the House Foreign Affairs Committee on repealing and reforming these AMFs. And during the course of that hearing, it came out that there was interest on the part of the committee chairman, even then, in um, adding potentially Iran-backed groups to the scope of a new um, updated AUMF. Um, in addition, at various points, both in the Senate and the House, um, particularly Republican members uh, of Congress, um, have expressed opposition to repealing the um, 2002 Iraq AMF because they think incorrectly that it provides some legal authority for use of force against Iran. You know, both those countries start with the letter I, but Iraq and Iran are in fact different countries. Um, and the 2002 Iraq AMF was not intended to use force against Iran. So, in terms of what's going on right now, the the, the tragic events in Israel, um, Palestine, the the ongoing fighting in Gaza, how is that likely to affect these ongoing efforts? I think it's likely to complicate efforts for a few reasons. First, uh, I think it's likely to bolster the, the attitude amongst those members of Congress who opposed 2002 AMF repeal um, because they mistakenly think it could authorize use of force against Iran, given all the anti-Iran sentiment at the moment. Um, second, I think anything that makes terrorism more politically salient is likely to complicate the repeal and reform efforts of the 2001 AMF, which again is the principal 
basis for the U.S. war on terror against groups, Sunni jihadi groups against groups like Al Qaeda, ISIS, um, Al Shabaab. Um, it does not provide authority for use of force against Hamas or Hezbollah. Um, just be very clear about that. Is there a world where uh, the conflict uh, Israel and Gaza could like uh, invite a, a rewritten version of of two thousand one? Um, you know, is there? Do you do you see a benefit in that? I think it's a real possibility. Um, again, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Mike McCall, has said this week that he is drafting an updated um, AUMF that would apply to Iran-backed groups, and he specifically identified Hamas and Hezbollah. Um, and so that's a serious concern. I think it would be a mistake. Um, the Biden administration, to its great credit, has made pay, take, taken pains to try to avoid escalation and to try to prevent a widening regional conflict. And Congress enacting a, what amounts to a declaration of war against you know, Hamas or Hezbollah uh, would be um, very much in uh, intention and undermine those efforts by the Biden administration. So it's not an effort that needs to be undertaken at this time. Dr. Finucane, uh, there's been reporting in the Israeli press that the Biden team has been telling the Israeli government that the United States will join the fight if Hezbollah fully joins the war in the north. Does the president actually have authority to do that at the moment? So uh, first, there, there's um, been some conflicting reporting on this um, in a press gaggle um, yesterday um, President Biden was asked about this reporting, and he flat out denied that the U.S. had uh, said any such thing to the government of Israel. Um, but later in that same gaggle, um, uh, John Kirby was asked about the use of potential use of military force against Hezbollah, and he was more ambiguous, seeming to leave open the possibility of that military option. So I think it's it's a, a real and worrying possibility. Now, in terms of what legal authority there would be uh, for the president to use force against Hezbollah. Um, there's no extant statutory authority for the use of force against that group. You know, the, the 2001 AOF does not apply to that group. Um, and there's no plausible way to stretch either that uh, authorization or the, um, the 2002 Iraq AOF to, to apply to, to Hezbollah. It's not going to work. And so if the president were to use force against Hezbollah, God forbid, um, it would almost certainly have to be under his authority uh, under Article 2 of the Constitution. Um, and so, for example, the U.S. did this back in 2014 in the early stages of the counter-ISIS campaign where the Obama administration invoked um, the national, amongst other national interests, the national interest in protecting um, the lives and properties of, of U.S. persons overseas. And given the number of um, U.S. citizens in Israel, that would, be, would seem to be a plausible argument that the um, Biden administration might uh, um, um, put forward for using military force um, if there were to be an escalation between um, Hezbollah and Israel. Um, that would raise a, a number of um, potential um, legal issues. Um, one is that under the War Powers Resolution, there, as you may be aware, there's a 60-day clock for the removal of U.S. forces from hostilities. Um, but successive administrations have found ways to get, a, get around that constraint. Um, and further, under, even under the executive branch's own sort of legal doctrine, um, operations amounting to war, to war in the constitutional sense would require congressional authorization. Um, and so if, this, uh, if there were any conflict with Hezbollah, um, the, it looked like it was going to be prolonged or more or substantial, the administration uh, could well go to Congress and seek statutory authority 
for um, such a conflict. And you know, given the the current mood on Capitol Hill, it is all too plausible that they would get such authorization. Uh, as I said, you know, Chairman McCall has already indicated he's drafting just such an authority. I would also add the, the, another potential um, for escalation in the region to potentially draw in the United States is attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. Uh, we're seeing that today. There have been last two days. There have been um, drone attacks on U.S. forces both in Iraq and now in two locations in Syria. Um, in the past, the U.S. has responded to such attacks with airstrikes on um, Iran-backed um, armed groups in in Syria. So that's another thing to keep an eye on. Absolutely. And, uh, you, you know, we, we were speaking previously with a young journalist named Matthew Petty, who was talking about how often uh, times a reprisal for Israeli actions comes out on Americans in the region. Um, uh, you, you mentioned, though, American citizens in Israel. Uh, and my understanding is that a, a, a number of American citizens have been uh, uh, taken hostage by Hamas. Uh, does the president have the authority to send troops to rescue uh, U.S. citizens uh, held by Hamas? Uh, and does he have the authority to like conduct retaliatory strikes on Hamas if those uh, citizens are harmed? So I, I want to be clear, first and foremost, that the administration has been pretty clear on this topic in particular um, in connection with the hostages, that they have no intention of putting U.S. boots on the ground and that any sort of U.S military support to recovery of hostages at this stage is in, in terms of supporting the Israelis, um, both by presumably advising them, but also intelligence sharing. Um, so that's the most important thing. Whether in principle the president would have legal authority um, to conduct hostage rescues, yes. You know, famously, um, and I, I think cautionary tale, um, the, the Carter administration attempted to use the U.S. military to recover the hostages held in Tehran. That did not work out terribly well. Um, and so there are a variety of prudential reasons why I, I think it's highly unlikely that the Biden administration would attempt to use the U.S. military to go into Gaza to um, extract hostages. I am curious, in, in, the, in the broader scope of America and Israel's relationship in the midst of this conflict, what are America's specific legal obligations to Israel at this point? Like, are we in a defensive alliance? And if so, what would that mean? People use the term ally in, in different ways. I typically reserve that for countries with which the U.S. has um, you know, mutual defense obligations, um, so NATO allies. Um, that's not the case for Israel. Um, it is a, a close partner, a friend, a country with whom the United States has, has very deep um, and close ties, um, but it's not an ally in the same sense that, you know, say the UK or, or France or Germany are under the NATO treaty. Um, there are certain preferences under US law for um, the provision of arms um, to Israel. It's known as the qualitative military edge, um, such that Israel is favored in the region in terms of arms transfers so that it will um, have an edge above you know, its, its Arab neighbors in terms of weapons it has. So I'm, I'm curious a little bit about the conduct of, of this conflict so far. Uh, the Biden administration has insisted on multiple occasions that Israel follow rules of war. Um, where, what are, where have these rules been relevant so far in the conflict and where might they be relevant in the event of a ground invasion of Gaza? You know, most important thing to bear in mind here is these rules apply to, to all parties of the conflicts. They apply to Hamas, they apply to Israel, um, and violations of these rules by one party does not excuse violations by the other party. Um, and so, you know, Hamas is an organized armed group that's conducting hostilities. You know, they're bound by them just as much as Israel. And I think it's there's no one can dispute that Hamas has already grievously violated um, these the laws of war in their attacks on um, the 7th of October. 
and the atrocities they committed that day. Um, in terms of you know what the, these rules govern, they would govern the conduct of hostilities, so airstrikes, rocket rocket attacks by um, by Hamas. Um, they would govern the treatment of detainees, um, the hostages that um, Hamas has taken. Like they are protected under the law of war, and if they are abused, um, that can amount to war crimes. Um, and other relevant rules may apply to the conduct of sieges. Um, so there's a variety of rules here. Uh, I think one thing that's important is not to lose um, sight of the forest for the trees. You know, I'm an international lawyer, you know, specialist in the law of war, um, and I enjoy these debates as much as the next lawyer. And there's been considerable um, ink spilled by my um, international law brethren on, the, on this topic. But I think it's important to sort of step back that and acknowledge that even if actions undertaken by either Hamas or um, Israel might be conceivably lawful or, or a lawyer could gener- generate um, a justification for them, um, it may be terrible as a matter of policy. Um, even if you could justi- justify um, some of the bombardment of Gaza from a legal perspective, from a humanitarian perspective or a policy perspective, um, it's been catastrophic for the population there. So I think that's really important not, not to let the law necessarily be um, dispositive. As, as lawyers, we have this concept of lawful but awful. And what we see right now in Israel-Palestine is certainly awful. So I want to, uh, uh, you know, dig a little deeper on the sort of the um, scenarios of, of a siege. You've written about, um, you know, doing less civilian harm. Um, you have um, recently commented about indiscriminate ta- attacks by Russia on Ukraine as a violation of uh, the Geneva Con- uh, Convention Additional Protocol 1. But to my understanding, Israel has not signed on to Protocol 1. Can you talk a little bit about um, Protocol 1 in the, the context of Israel cutting off um, electricity and water and how that applies to both Israel and Hamas, who haven't signed on to Protocol 1. Right. So um, I, I think it's just to back up, the, the, um, the relevant rule that I've written about in, in, uh, regarding additional Protocol 1 is the prohibition on indiscriminate attacks, specifically the prohibition on attacks that are not specifically directed at, or not directed at a specific military objective. And so that rule is significant because the United States, also not a party to AP1, um, has recognized, really recognized, that rule represents customary international law. And what that means by customary international law is a, a law that, even if it's not, um, even if a state's not a party to a tready, it is nonetheless binding, right? It's, a, it's generally binding. And so the United States has accepted that even though the U.S. is not a part of this treaty, that, that rule is binding on it and it's binding on, on other states as custom. Um, so that means it's binding on Russia. It means it's binding on um, it's binding on Israel. And the U.S. has also recognized that it applies to non-state actors. So it's also binding on Hamas. So just in the same way that you know Russia is prohibited from conducting you know attacks that are not directed at a specific military objective, um, so too are you know Israel, Hamas, and and the United States. And, and further, the United States even recognized that violations of that rule um, constitute war crimes. Um, and so that's like the sort of the legal theory, as it were. Now, in terms of the, the conduct of, of, of 
siege or the cutting off of water or electricity. You know, like I say, again, there's, you know, a heated legal debate on this issue. And I don't, uh, but I, I really want to focus on the practical humanitarian um, aspects here um, and the, the just miserable situation in, in Gaza here. Um, and I think it's particularly significant when you um, put that in the context of Israel, the Israeli government pretty forthly, uh, forthrightly acknowledging that they don't have an end game in mind here. Um, the U.S. government, to their credit, has been pushing the Israelis to think about what comes after Hamas. Okay, but to my, as far as I know, there's no answer to that question here to the what comes after Hamas. And so you, you you're dealing with the context here of the immiseration of two million plus people in Gaza, most of whom were civilians, um, and there's no clear end game. Um, uh, in mind. Staying on that subject, last year the Biden administration stood up the Civilian Harm Mitigation and Response Action Plan. Um, can can you talk a little bit about that um, and how does that uh, apply to to this situation when we're talking about the the humanitarian issue? Um, and does does that action plan? Um, bring in the question about uh, responsible weapon sales um, in in a situation like this? So, um, you know, the CHIMRAP, as it's called in, by the, the CIVCAS community, um, was prompted by a number of high-profile civilian casualty incidents that occurred during the course of the U.S. war on terror, um, one of the more significant ones being the um, 2021 strike in Kabul that targeted and turned out to be a civilian aid worker and killed him along with, you know, with nine other civilians. As well as a number of um, civilian casualty incidents unearthed by Osmond Khan of the New York Times, um, you know, it's still being stood up. I don't think we're going to have a, uh, we don't have a, a, uh, a terribly precise idea of, of how it's going to be implemented. Um, but it, it seems to be more focused on U.S. conduct, you know, civilian casualties called, caused by the U.S. rather than U.S. partner forces or recipients of U.S. weapons. Um, there's a separate program that's been reported upon by Missy Ryan of the Washington Post, um, led by the State Department. Um, they report, the State Department reportedly cabled all embassies um, about this to um, collect information about um, potential civilian harm caused by U.S. weapons that have been you know, transferred to, to partners and allies. Um, it would seem that this, uh, the current conflict, um, Israel Palestine would be a good test for that um, program of monitoring spending harm caused by U.S. weapons. Um, but some of the reporting associated with the um, resignation of a State Department um, official in the Bureau of Political and Military Affairs um, does call into question whether and to what extent monitoring of civilian harm or considerations of law of war compliance or, or potential civilian casualties are actually relevant in the ongoing um, policy deliberations over transferring um, U.S. weapons to Israel f- for the purposes of this conflict. So you were you were previously making uh, an important point, which was you know that at, at the end of at the end of the day, like the laws of war apply to both sides. I, I am I am curious because there there is a lot of conversation about um, about what Hamas did uh, to to Israelis. What does the law of armed conflict have to say about Hamas's approach to to this conflict? Like, like where where are we seeing major violations of um, recognized laws of armed conflict? Like again, it's been a lot written on this. Um, sometimes you know it's difficult to apply 
the law of the facts, you know, in target situations, you don't have, they're be highly fact dependent. you don't have all information or very context specific. But, um, I, you know, the actions that Hamas has committed, um, I, I, hard, hard to debate. So just to lay out like in a decontextualized fashion here, targeting civilians, if you deliberate targeting civilians, prohibiting the law of war and a war crime, torture, a war crime, rape, a war crime, hostage taking, a war crime. So like, you know, some of the actions that Hamas has undertaken, this is like not, not hard stuff. I would, I would just say in this context, the international, the um, um, prosecutor of the International Criminal Court has come out and asserted that, you know, he has jurisdiction over nationals of Palestine um, and, and indicated more broadly that he is, you know, jurisdiction or situation in Palestine. Um, wh- whether anything comes to that, we'll see. Um, and the former prosecutor of the ICC has also been fairly vocal on social media about violations um, that, in his view, you know, would fall within the um, jurisdiction of the ICC. There's a lot of conversation about interpretation when it comes to these laws of war. Um, I, I am just wondering, in your view, do you think Israel and the United States have a divergence in how they interpret the laws of armed conflict? I think that the U.S. and Israel, in, in my experience, are, are broadly aligned. Um, I think that there may be some differences. Um, I don't think we I don't have perfect fidelity on the you know how Israel interprets the, the law in, in all circumstances. And then actually how it's implemented in practice. So it's one thing to actually you know see the law of war manual or see articles published by you know judge advocate generals from a particular military. It's another thing to be in the room when um, the law is actually being applied to facts. And you know, obviously I'm not in the room uh, when that's happening. Um, there's there's been some reporting that um, Israel may have more expansive interpretations of what constitutes a military objective. Um, for example, um, targeting. Regarding an entire apartment building to be a single military objective, if you know if one one room or one apartment is you know used um, for some military purpose, um, I've also seen public reporting about the the targeting of Hamas political leaders. Uh, it's not clear based on the reporting uh, whether these individuals are lawful um, targets. It's not clear whether they have a you know have some military role or, or military function. Um, so I, you know it's it's not, there's not enough information to draw. Um, any definite conclusions, but there are potential indications that um, there may be some divergence between um, how the U.S. Or, or elements of the U.S. government may interpret the laws of war and, and how Israel does. But again, we, we would need more information. Well, we, we, we've talked for a while about the what we know about the conflict so far. Um, I, I, I wanted to, you know, while we have you here, go to some other uh, uh, emerging issues in, in the laws of war. Uh, one of the ones that, you know, I find most pressing um, is the fact that lawmakers are, are frequently speaking about the need to exercise American military force in combating Mexican drug operations. Um, I, I'm, you know, just off the bat, from 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 your perspective, do you think that cartels should be designated as foreign terrorist organizations? No, I think it's this conversation has been deeply silly. Um, but I, you know, if there, it's hard to even say this. But if there is any, even the thinnest or skinniest of, of silver linings to this tragedy in Israel Palestine, it's that the the proponents of going to war in Mexico seem to have pivoted to going to war elsewhere and, and forgotten about their uh, uh, enthusiasm for. Um, you know, GWAT 2.0 south of the border. So ho- hopefully that, you know, that, that's over and done with. Um, and we, we won't hear any more about proposals to designate, you know, cartels as FTOs or designate fentanyl as a chemical weapon or pass a, an AUMF for, you know, for Mexican drug cartels. Hopefully, you know, the, the um, members of Congress have moved on from that silliness. 
Well, I, I, I am just wondering about what, what would happen if that were to become the case. I mean, uh, uh, what did it mean for the IRGC to be designated as a foreign terrorist organization? Like, like, like what might that mean if we, if we were to take that route? So just to be clear, these designations do not in themselves constitute authorizations for the use of military force, right? You know, um, neither designating India as a foreign terrorist organization or designating you know, a particular substance as a chemical weapon. Would you know would by itself provide a basis for the use of military force. However, what's risky about these proposals, this legislation, is it normalizes the idea of conceiving of these issues in military terms. And as we saw with the designation of the IRGC, you know, it can help pave the way for the eventual use of military force. Um, you know, the eventual strike on Soleimani. I think the the designation of the IRGC as a, as a terrorist organization. You know, started people in the bureaucracy thinking, well, what, what, we have a toolkit for dealing with terrorists, well, drone strikes, for example. And so I think that is a, a, a real risk um, if, you know, Congress would have you know, renewed interest on you know, the, the war in Mexico um, nonsense. I want to ask, you know, when we're talking about the risks of, of getting on put on this list, what's the process for, for getting off? Um, I, I know that there's some political costs, but what are the mechanisms for trying to get yourself off the list once you're on? There are certain um, standards, certain criteria set out, certain criteria set out in statute for um, delisting. But you know, it is politically sticky. Uh, once a group is added, it's very it is very hard to get off. Um, and you know, one of the most surefire ways to get off is to cease to exist. Um, and so once these, and I should be clear that, the, the, you know, these groups are subject to a variety of, you know, sanctions already, um, you know, they're, they're you know, subject to, of course, the, a panoply of U.S. criminal law. Um, but some of them, like, you know, they're pretty significant employers in Mexico do business. Um, and so um, FTO designation would carry some fairly significant collateral consequences for anyone interacting with them in um, Mexico because the the provision of material support would to these organizations uh, a term that's defined very broadly would itself be a crime under US law um, and so there there are you know some pretty significant downsides to that not much in the way of upside um, and further you know there, like I say there's the risk of sort of framing these entities as, as terrorists and the attendant risk that carries of normalizing the idea of, you know, using military force against them. Well, and I'm also struck by the idea that the best way to get off of the list is to cease to exist um, with, you know, the way the drug war has played out in the past. Uh, the crumbling of one cartel has actually been uh, like a worse step in in the, the drug war because other cartels pop up and they compete violently for the the previously held territory. Um, so in that sense, um, it seems like it would be counterproductive. Yeah, you know, I think that's, that's, that's a definite possibility. Even if you were to designate a group today, it may not be around in four or five years. So um, yeah, another reason it's not a very good policy response to what is a, a real problem, which is the, the fentanyl scourge that 
um, and the, the thousands and thousands of Americans uh, that die every year as a result of fentanyl. You were mentioning uh, this this question of uh, uh, updating the Chemical Weapons Convention to classify fentanyl as a chemical weapon. Um, you, you specify that it wouldn't be an authorization in of itself, but what would the effects of a policy change like that be? If this if that legislation were ever to be um, enacted, um, the White House would likely regard it to be unconstitutional to the extent that it directs the Secretary of State to undertake specific negotiations and seek to add fentanyl to the Chemical Weapons Convention. Um, and it's and it's far from clear whether you know the U.S. even if it wanted to would be successful in persuading under other countries to amend the the convention in that fashion. Um, now, I, I think one of the areas of concern here is um, what took place with respect to chemical weapons in Syria. Uh, where you had this notion, you know, because the the weapons are so horrific, um, and the, and the drawing of the the red line by the Obama administration that the use of military force was an appropriate policy response to use of chemical weapons, um, that the U.S. should use military force to retaliate to discourage use of chemical weapons, and so you know, there's now been um, legal uh, legal memos drafted by the Office of Legal Counsel endorsing. Um, use of military force against counter chemical weapons, at least in the specific context of Syria. And so, um, you know, framing fentanyl um, as a chemical weapon, you know, brings to mind the, the sort of slippery slope, uh, once again, to the use of military force as, a, as an appropriate policy response to, um, to the substance. So while we're still talking about the small, uh, you know, military organizations sprawled across the world that the United States engages with, um, last week we had an episode, or on Tuesday we released an episode with another national security lawyer, uh, Elizabeth Beavers, uh, where, you know, there are authorizations like the 127E program and 1202. Um, I, I'm, I'm wondering, like, how does... Uh, 127E and the number of other uh, iterations of it that now seem to affect great power competition uh, impact the use of force authorizations. I think that the concerns related to the 127 Echo Authority, um, the primary concerns in the sort of war powers AMS space may have passed, um, but it's not. We don't know um, the, the full picture because much of what takes place is, is classified. Just for the uh, listeners' background. Uh, the, what's referred to as the 127 ECHO or 127E authority is, is a fiscal authority that authorizes the um, Secretary of Defense to spend a certain amount of money in support of um, partner forces that are countering terrorism. Um, so it's a fiscal authority, it's authorization to, to spend money. It is not a use of force authority. Um, but nonetheless, um, U.S. forces, particularly in Africa, um, that are deployed in connection with this program, you know, working with you know local indigenous partners on, on counterterrorism uh, missions, um, have often uh, it seems engaged in hostilities, and the, the legal basis for those U.S. forces getting in firefights uh, across the African continent is far from clear. Um, and so sometimes, after the fact, it seems that um, you know the executive branch may argue that. U.S. forces involved in combat in these so-called advise, assist, and accompany operations that somehow authorized by the 2001 AMF. Other times, it's not clear at all. Um, and it also has implications for the war powers uh, resolution and, and war powers reporting. Um, because you know, these, these incidents, if they're not covered by the 2001 AMF, would seem to be um, need to be reported to Congress within 48 hours so that Congress is aware that you know, you know, U.S. forces, by the way, are like 
you know, shooting up ISIS dudes in Cameroon or, you know, getting in a firefight um, down near Lake Chad in, in, in southern Niger. Um, but that's not been the case. Um, and, and one of the particular, you know, concerns there is that, you know, the War Powers Resolution was enacted to, so that um, Congress would be on notice if the U.S., you know, military um, was involved in hostilities to keep the president from taking the war, uh, to take the country to war without Congress being aware. And so, you know, because there, was a, there were a number of these episodes prior to the tragic attack on U.S. forces at Tongo Tongo in 2017 that killed four U.S. soldiers, but they weren't notified to Congress. And had they been, had Congress and the American public been aware um, that U.S. forces were, you know, somewhat, somewhat regularly engaged in combat in Africa, you know, could the tragedy at Tongo Tongo have been prevented? I don't know. Um, but I think this is an issue that Congress should definitely look into. From from what I understand about the history of, of war powers, one of the one of the biggest shifts in it was the 1973 War Powers Act. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, 127 Echo isn't is, isn't an authorization in of itself, and just kind of like lets us bleed into the point of conflict. Um, do do you think pr- uh, uh, statutes like 127E and you know um, other versions of it like 1202? Um, well, I, I don't want to say that they're the same thing, but like, do, do you think those undermine the War Powers Act? I think it depends how they're implemented, um, and I think it depends also how the War Powers Resolution is implemented. So it gets down to, to guidance, uh, what guidance is being provided within the, the U.S. military. Um, you know, you can all, even if you were to draft the, the perfect update to the um, 1973 War Powers Resolution, um, it would you know it would still depend on you know how it's implemented. Um, and so my understanding is that the um, Biden administration has imposed um, more stringent requirements on U.S. forces in Africa. And I think there were already some, restri- you know, unsurprisingly, restrictions imposed after the Tongo Tongo tra- tragedy. And so, um, you know, if, if if there's if U.S. forces are kept on a tighter leash and less likely to engage in hostilities, then it may be a perfectly fine um, authority to accomplish its original purpose. And the original purpose was not to have U.S. forces engage in hostilities that were not otherwise authorized. So I know you said that 127E is not an authorization to use force. Um, is it limited to a uh, specific region or is it just focused on terrorism in general? And I guess what I'm getting to is, is this the type of thing where um, seeing the um, violence between Israel and Hamas can you envision uh, a scenario where 127E does put American boots on the ground to aid Israelis in, in the fight against Hamas and potentially Hezbollah? A few different responses. First, we don't really know where this authority is being used since it, it's classified. The existence of individual uh, 127 ECHO programs are, is classified. I think if you were to ask the Department of Defense why that is, I think they would say that there are some and I think plausibly, uh, not crazy, but I think they would say that um, the existence of these programs in particular countries is uh, would be diplomatically sensitive um, because the way that the programs might work is that you know a, a unit of of a host station, host nation's military, is essentially placed under the c- control of U.S. Uh, special operations forces, um, and they are essentially a, a surrogate or proxy force. Uh, for the U.S. military to conduct, you know, counterterrorism operations. Um, 
with respect to the particular situation of you know Israel Palestine, you know Hamas, um, I don't think it's um, likely right now, given that what the White House has been um, saying about no U.S. boots on the ground. So I'm not particularly concerned there, um, as long as they maintain that policy line. You know, it's a it's a, it's a policy decision to, to place U.S. troops in harm's way, and it seems that the administration is wisely. Um, shying away from doing that. Uh, as we're talking about different recipients of American aid and arms and the legality of it, uh, we we had a, a, a another guest on, uh, an, an expert on arms sales, uh, Jordan Cohen, who was talking a little bit about how um, their arms are getting to you know Saudi Arabia and, and the UAE uh, faster than places like Taiwan. I, I am curious, uh, because uh, my understanding is that you've talked about this in the past, what especially now as our priorities change with the conflict in Gaza, where, where do you think the, um, the, the, the legal standing of support for uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE's role in the Yemeni civil war stands? Fortunately, um, you know, there has been a um, cessation or hostility ceasefire uh, involving Saudi Arabia and, and the Houthis. The Saudi air campaign has more or less been paused indefinitely. Um, the Biden administration, um, when it came into office, uh, um, <clears throat> ceased uh, providing what, the, what it termed you know, offensive weapons to Saudi Arabia, um, particularly um, air delivered munitions. Um, they have provided you know, some defensive um, arms in the way of like um, air defense. Um, so I, the, I think the, the concern with transferring arms to Saudi Arabia is not as um, pressing now as it was, say, in 2017, because the war is in a very different place, um, policy is in a very different place. Um, so it's a very different situation than it was back then. On that topic of of, of Taiwan, I, I, I am curious, uh, what is the current legal mechanism behind strategic ambiguity in Taiwan? Like, uh, what, what, what are the circumstances under which we would defend Taiwan? Um, in in terms of like what's actually allowing us to do it legally? Well, that's ambiguous. Um, I mean, I, by <laughs> legal background, legal background in, in the 1950s, um, the United States entered into a mutual defense treaty with Formosa, what's now referred to as Taiwan, and Congress enacted uh, a pre-authorization for use of force, a just in, just in case war authorization. Um, now that war authorization um, was repealed in the 1970s in the context of you know, warming relations with, with China. And then in 1979, the um, Mutual Defense Treaty was um, terminated by um, President Carter, and not without some controversy um, in Congress. And some of the, the China hawks were unhappy about that. But he, he, anyway, he, he terminated it. And so um, the, the current situation is that there's no standing use of force authorization relevant to um, Taiwan, China, um, and the administration maintains a policy of strategic ambiguity about whether uh, and under what circumstances the United States would, would use military force. Um, so that's, that's the current lay of the land. Uh, Dr. Fanukin, I was wondering, what do you think it would take to build the congressional will for a new uh, uh, political effort for something akin to the 1973 War Powers Act? Well, I mean, the unfortunate background to the 1973 um, War Powers Resolution was the war in, in Vietnam and more broadly in Indochina, and the perception by Congress that some of the actions taken particularly by President Nixon were beyond what Congress had authorized in the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. So 
you know, military action in, in Cambodia, for example. Um, they felt that that had been authorized, and they, you know, many members of Congress claimed to be surprised um, by the intervention there. And so that's the backdrop to the congressional efforts, ultimately successful to enact the, the War Powers Resolution. And, and you know, had two principal goals of one, substantively reining in the president's authority to use military force without prior congressional authorization, uh, but two, to keep Congress on notice about the deployment of U.S. troops overseas or when U.S. troops were introduced in the, um, the term being hostilities. Um, and for a variety of reasons, um, the War Powers Resolution has not lived up to uh, its original uh, aspirations. Um, you know, the Supreme Court has gutted one of the, the key provisions of it. Um, the executive branch has been able to um, narrowly interpret some of the provisions, again, like the term hostilities. And it's, it's proven very difficult in practice for um you know, members of Congress, either singly or, or groups of members of Congress, to um, challenge the application of the War Powers Resolution in court. Um, and you know, in terms of what it would take to have a you know reformed or updated um, War Powers Resolution, I mean, there have been recent um, legislative proposals in both houses of Congress, particularly in the last Congress, there were um, both in the House and the Senate, there were um, reform packages, comprehensive sort of uh, national security reform packages introduced, um, and the one in the, in the House has been um, reintroduced in this Congress. Um, but I will say that some of the steam behind, uh, you know, national security powers reform and war powers reform seems to dissipate. I think one there was a considerable impetus for these reforms um, building towards the end of the Trump administration. Um, and I think for a number of reasons. One, uh, U.S. Um, arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the, and the ruinous war um, in Yemen and the way that those you know, weapons were being used in Yemen. Um, and so you saw attempts to block arms sales. You saw a number of joint resolutions of disapproval that passed both houses of Congress, but ultimately vetoed um, by, by President Trump. Um, and then you saw um, serious concerns in Congress about uh, the reckless use of military force, uh, possibly precipitating a war. Um, so the Soleimani strike being a good example in, in 2020. Um, Congress had been you know, un, uh, aware of growing tensions between U.S. and Iran for some time, had, had tried to do things about it, trying to get more information, tried to you know, pressure the administration to be clear about when, when and whether it would use force against Iran, um, but didn't had limited success. And so after the, the Soleimani strike, uh, to which you know, Iran, of course, retaliated with ballistic missile strikes on U.S. troops in northern Iraq, um, there was real fears of um, the U.S. You know, sliding into conflict with Iran. Um, and Senator DeCain um, introduced uh, a resolution to make clear that Congress, was Congress's view that the, the president had no authority to go to war against Iran. Um, and that passed both houses of Congress with bipartisan majorities, but again, was ultimately vetoed by, by President Trump. And so you know, those are the sorts of animating concerns that animated um, these um, measures about the House and the Senate to overhaul the War Powers Resolution. I think the, the perspective has probably been that the Biden administration has been more restrained, more even keeled, um, less likely to um, precipitate, uh, perhaps by accident, a significant um, conflict. Um, and I think right now, given the mood uh, on Capitol Hill, uh, the, the prospect, short, the near-term prospects for um, you know, sort of broader war powers reform is probably not high. 
um, you know, understanding the passions are fairly inflamed because of the uh, you know atrocities um, in in Israel and the ongoing conflict there. Um, but I think it's a it's an important long term project that both people on the outside um, as well as members of Congress need to keep trying to advance um, because you know ultimately uh, the Congress uh, is assigned the lion's share of the war powers under the, the Constitution. Um, and there's a reason for that, um, to make it harder for the country to go to war. And so Congress does need to enact these structural reforms in order to reclaim um, that authority. So you just finished the, that answer by by saying that, you know, the, uh, the Constitution gives Congress these authorities. Um, and I'll use a word that you didn't a minute ago uh, when you basically um, said that multiple administrations um, – have in a sense manipulated what the use of force means. Um, is is this like you know through the office of legal counsel that that manages to do this? Um, and if if that is the case, why do executive branch lawyers get to be the ones that to decide what the Constitution says about the use of force? So um, just for the, the background of listeners, the, the office of legal counsel. Uh, is the division of the Department of Justice that acts like something of a Supreme Court within the U.S. executive branch. That is, its opinions are generally binding unless they're overridden by the attorney general or the president. Um, and as for why um, OLC and executive branch lawyers more generally play a sort of an outsized role in interpreting issues relating to the use of force, um, and, uh, and the war powers provisions of the, both the resolution, but also the Constitution. Uh, there are a few factors at play here. One, um, the courts have, in, in recent decades have generally been very reluctant to um, wade into these issues and opine on the merits of litigation brought under the war powers resolution or litigation brought challenging um, the you know the use of force by the executive branch. Um, the courts have a variety of means of avoiding getting to the merits. You know, they can dismiss suits on standing, on the political question around, on ripeness or on mootness. Um, and so it's, it's, it's been rare in recent decades for courts to actually weigh in and issue um, substantive rulings on these war powers disputes. There have been some in the context of the war on terror and, and typically uh, with respect to detention, mostly to detention. Um, but suits, for example, challenging the application of the you know, war powers resolution um, generally don't um, provide any you know, um, substantive ruling on the merits. An- another big factor is you know, Congress has, uh, has itself to blame um, for the accretion of authority in the executive branch. You know, the Congress has often been all too happy to defer to the executive branch and not have to take hard votes, um, not have to put itself in the line. Um, and so... You know, it's it's been a you know a bit both a um, the executive branch um, claiming more authority, um, but also the um, the Congress not properly asserting its own prerogatives. Well, Dr. Finucane, we have a number of students in our in our network who aspire to do the kind of work that you're doing. You know, work at state, uh, or, uh, and you know, uh, push for for a better approach to war powers. What would be your advice uh, for for students who want to do similar work to to the work that you're doing now? 
Well, I think it falls on from our conversation a moment ago that you know because so much of the action in this space is actually taking place within the executive branch behind closed doors, it's really hard to have a nuanced, um, well-rounded understanding of how these issues play out in real life if you haven't had that experience. Um, it's, it's this is you know it's it's not like you know being able to look up opinions on Westlaw and, and get your arms around an issue um, that, that the courts have resolved because these so, so few of these issues are actually resolved in the courts. You know, there, yes, there are there are many executive branch legal opinions that are now publicly available, but there's really no substitute for doing. Um, and so I, if you're interested in you know, working in the national security or, or war power space, I would strongly advise that people, um, you know, aim to work at the State Department, aim to work at the Department of Defense's Office of General Counsel, aim to work at the Department of Justice, um, you know, or the you know, or the legal office at the National Security Council. Um, that's how you're going to get, you know, a really granular, nuanced um, understanding of the law in practice, how the law actually plays out. Well, Dr. Brian Finucane, thank you for coming on Security Dilemma. My pleasure. Thank you. Security Dilemma is a podcast by the John Quincy Adams Society. To learn more about our programs, visit our website at jqas.org. Remember to rate and review on your podcast app and join us every Tuesday for new episodes of Security Dilemma.